When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Robert Gordon returns to talk about his book, It Came From Memphis, which is now newly revised and updated. In this episode, Robert and Nate discuss Memphis music in the 1960s, the cultural collisions that produced so much amazing music, Chip's Moman and American Sound Studios, Dan Penn, Alex Chilton, The Box Tops, and Big Star. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I've got the great pleasure of welcoming back Robert Gordon, this time to talk about his book, It Came From Memphis, which has been re-released and updated. Robert, welcome back. Thank you, Nate. Glad to be here. Cool. And I've loved this book for a long time. It's the first book I read of yours back in the day, and it was fun to, to take another look. And I had to actually get out the old edition and uh, try to figure out what changed. What what did change in the new edition? Well, uh, the one of the big changes was right after this book came out around Memphis, you know, I was accosted all the time. People telling me, I, your, your book is great, but it's not complete. I should be in it. But one letter I got pointed out to me that um, the letter writer, her first husband was in the book and her second husband was in the book and she was not in the book. And, and she cited Marion Keisker from Sam Phillips Sun Records and she cited uh, the note that Abigail Adams wrote to John Adams when they were creating the Constitution. Her note was, remember the ladies. And I realized that that Linda Crosswaite for Terry was right. And so the first thing I did when I started on this new edition was to interview her. And I made a list of about 10 other women uh, who were relevant to the book, but I hadn't interviewed at the time. So I've got them in there that I, their interviews, I kind of feathered into the book because I didn't want to change the book too radically. I thought of it like a house renovation where you, where you let in more light where you can. Yeah. And there's not, there is a, a an updated, a chapter at the end that updates and kind of catches up with people of what's happened to yes. people since the nineties. But I like that you stuck with the format of, you know, the book is basically from the perspective of the 90s. So you yes. didn't allude to the future there. And you also added a new forward by Hanif Abdurraqib. Um, yes. To go with the one by Peter Goralnik. Excellent, excellent uh, authors there to get to do the introductions. Thank you. It was, uh, you know, I just felt honored that that these guys were interested. And and uh, Hanif, you know, tells the story in his forward of, of some record store clerk throwing the book on his stack and saying, you need to read this. And, you know, that's kind of what, what, what you want to hear that the book is got, you know, that people are out there passionately pushing it onto others. And, and I want to say the other new edition is 
there's a a uh, massive buying guide in the back now with uh, that's you know done by chapter but tells a lot about where you can hear this music or see documentaries or read other books or find relevant materials so that's all that's all what makes it updated cool and the book we we should talk about the book itself now the, mm-hmm. the book has always served as an excellent historical music book about memphis basically from the you, you start in the late 40s but really the meat of it is from the late 50s in through the mid 70s with some updates taking us up to the 90s and then the new uh, uh, chapter at the end catches us up to 2010 but 2020 and, and 2020 sorry i, I lost a decade there <laughs> but uh it it, it's very serviceable, and, and I don't mean workmanlike. I mean, it's an excellent history of Memphis music in that period, but I think the extra added X factor, the special sauce in this book has always been that you chronicle a lot of characters who are integral to the music scene and the music making, but you never hear about it. You don't see their names on record covers. You don't see them on the behind the music documentaries. You usually <laughs> don't read them about them in books. And, you know, I'm talking about people that artists, you know, Bill Eggleston, whose photograph was famously on the cover of Big Star's second album, or, you know, Jim McIntyre, who's a scenester and, and owned the Bitter Lemon coffee shop that was, you know, the hip place for bands to play in the mid 60s. Harry Fritzius who was yeah. uh, just a total lunatic that was Dewey Phillips's right-hand man when Dewey Phillips had a live music TV show, one of the first live music TV shows in the country. Yes. And apparently Fritzius was the source of a lot of the craziness. Yes. Well, I mean, we can't discount Dewey for the craziness, but it did uh, it did leap algorithmically when the two of them got together. And, 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 and the book does... I like to say that it it shines a light in the shadows. Um, I really got the idea for the book because I used to go into bookstores and go to the music section and pull down music books and I could never find in the indexes what I was looking for. You know, Jim Dickinson or Alex Chilton, occasionally they would show up, you know, but, but that was like all I could, all I could get. And, and, and I wanted a book that told their stories and that told how this, um, I really wanted to know, you mentioned the Bitter Lemon Coffee House. I really wanted to know how the Bohemian hippies and the old black blues players, how they actually exchanged information. That was like the, the, the kind of the nut of it. Because I knew that segregation was going to keep them apart, yet they'd gotten together and and become friends, you know. And so, where did this happen, and how, and what were the circumstances? Um, so, so that was kind of what motivated me, and it led me into this whole coffeehouse scene, which I knew nothing about when I began the book. You know, I, I knew Dickinson, I knew Chilton, I knew Taft Falco barbarian records you know i mean i knew a a fair amount of pretty obscure stuff but there was historical stuff i just didn't know and that as i would get these stories it's really you know it's a very anecdotal book it's it's filled with stories and as i would get these stories and go do more research i found out that you know john mcintyre was alive and he could tell me about the bitter lemon and all these things so it was a real cool a uh, rabbit hole for me to go down and I never expected it to catch on like it did and I didn't understand it for a while but I'm when I went back to the book to prepare it for this edition it was the first time I read it in probably 15 years and I had the distance to feel the liberating sense of the book the idea that not every song has to be a hit you know that that not every song even has to be heard. You know, you look at the big star stuff. It wasn't heard for years and years and years that every, you know, if you do the good work, this book kind of says, make the art you want to make and the world and those who need to find it will find it. And that that's kind of what I have taken away from the book. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to drill down and talk about Memphis specifically and some of the things you reveal about Memphis. But first, I want to mention a couple more of the, the characters that you document in this book that are the type that usually don't get in there. And, and it's not just make the kind of music you want to make. It's also live the kind of life you want to make, or the kind of life you can't <laughs> help living. And, and I'm thinking in particular of a pair that weren't a couple, but they sort of function in the book's narrative as this sort of male female id of of memphis and i'm talking about campbell kinsinger who was a bodyguard basically for chips moen the, the studio head and others and also just an absolute wild man and and monster really monster and, and, yeah and Marsha gang leader, yeah, yeah, who militarized his motorcycle gang, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and then Marsha Hare, who is this, uh, you know, she's on the cover, and her tales, you know, uh, definitely give the woman's perspective, and she's also somebody who adds this element of wildness. I mean, if she's not throwing ketchup bottles through windows, she's going down to Fayetteville and yeah. ruining a promoter's reputation permanently in that area because she took her titty dancer act on, on stage with the band. I love that she says uh, at that incident, that Fayetteville incident, uh, like she says something like, we were all feeling really ragged because we'd, we'd been tripping for two days. So our friend gave us a shot of morphine and we went out and started, you know, and then we went out and started the show. It's like, oh man, you know, yeah, that's going to happen. I've talked to people who were at that performance you know there's a guy in town who was there and he says man i was 14 and i was looking at these ladies on stage and i couldn't believe what i was seeing and, <laughs> and they all got in trouble <laughs> yeah i mean it's it sounds like the kind of thing you'd hear about a grateful dead show in san francisco in the 60s or a butthole surfers show yeah. in the 80s or 90s it's it's you know, definitely not what you think of hap hitting, but you know, button down Fayetteville, Arkansas in the mid '60s. So, a lot of wild tales there. But I think, it, to me, the the real magic of the book is what it reveals about Memphis. Because coming in as a fan of Sun Records and Stax Records and mm -hmm. and Al Green and everything, I had this really naive view of Memphis as this place that was kind of ahead of the curve of the South. Uh, in terms of integration, and and that's not it at all. I mean, I, I think you've got a great quote in there from Wayne Jackson, who was part of the Memphis Horns at Sax Records. He said, Memphis is a tension that expresses itself through music. Isn't that great? Wayne, man, I miss him. Boy, do I miss him. He, You could just sit around with him, and he had this silver tongue and these beautiful, intense, honest things would just come rolling off this west memphis you know hit guy's tongue it was he was great he was great yes and and that is it the you know when i i was raised in memphis through the 60s well all my life but i was you know a kid in the 60s and i remember the intensity of the segregation you know even me as a as a child was aware of it and so the idea that these musicians were overcoming it, you know, it really was happening on the margins of society. Jim Dickinson, one of the book, one of the book's prominent characters says, uh, if you're not on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And, and all the musicians were on the edge. You know, they were really, do they were doing the things that society was telling them they couldn't do. And I think it's because in Memphis, it's always been like half black and half white in terms of the population. And these kids could see and could hear that what their parents were telling them about race just wasn't true. You know, when you, when you, you know, this is another way I thought of this book when it was hard for me to conceive of the book. And one of the things I kept thinking of was this is the audience when Elvis begins, right? These are the kids in the audience. So, so they were exposed to rhythm and blues and to blues, and they heard the good times, they heard the honesty, they heard, you know, the exploration of the human condition, and their parents didn't hear any of that. And so these were kids who had to defy society's greater uh, 
you know, intentions in order to open up the rest of the world, the rest of society to what was to what was there, to the idea that um, that, you know, that that these that the that it was OK to cross the tracks, that it was OK to be friends with people who didn't look like you. And let's hear a little bit of that conflict. This is the elder Charles Beck and his rock and roll sermon. And this is just a great track that you put on the, it came from Memphis compilation you put together. And this really expresses the contradictions of Memphis music. Kind of good amen. Amen. Rock and roll has just about brought about the disintegration of our civilization. It has taken a great moral effect upon the youth of our land. The filth, the dirty song that's played on some of our radio. And that was the Elder Charles Beck delivering uh, the rock and roll sermon, which ostensibly is supposed to warn people away from rock and roll, but it's also a great rock and roll track in its own right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah, you got to wonder. I don't think he intended that. Uh, You know, I think he was trying to be, uh, to give fair warning, but gosh, he's just, he's caught the spirit. And and a great backup band as well, and the and the crowd is doing it, and and it really brings home to me since I've I've been piecing together that's an obvious thing, but for some reason it, it came as a flash to me recently that gospel is really the secret ingredient of rock and roll. That almost, with the exception of maybe Chuck Berry, with all the great first generation rock and rollers were just steeped in this stuff. You know, whether it's Elvis or Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, that intensity of the gospel service particularly the Pentecostal service, you know, really brought the wildness home. But you you connect a thread, you, you weave a thread that goes a little deeper. And you tell the story kind of how you got introduced to the roots of Memphis music. And it was via a Rolling Stones concert. What did you see at that Rolling Stones concert that put you in touch with the roots? It was uh, 4th of July, 1975. I was 14. It was an all-day outdoor concert. Uh, so let me just note for people that the fourth that you know the fourth of july in memphis is hot and humid and we were outdoors and after the you know the announced bands were done by like mid-afternoon mick jagger said man i'm not going on stage until the sun goes down and it cools off little did he know that it would not be cooling off um and so we were stuck in the audience kind of waiting and i remember my friend went to get coca-cola's and like three hours later, I had my back to the stage looking for him, and I heard this sound. And, and it was unlike anything I'd ever heard. And, and, and I, 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 can, I remember turning around and going, what is that? And I couldn't really see clearly, but Furry began to, you know, what it was was Furry getting tuned up and getting settled on stage. And then this old black bluesman, you know, approaching 80, Uh, with a wooden leg and a cane and an acoustic guitar started to entertain 55,000 hot rednecks. And man, he was great. I just couldn't believe, you know, the humor and the fun that, that he was sharing. And that made me aware that the old blues guys were alive in town, you know, that it wasn't just uh, a dead music with recordings. And a couple years later, a year and a half later, at my high school, uh, one day at lunch, Furry Lewis showed up on the porch playing his guitar and a hat was passed. And so I went around saying, how did this happen? And an older, an upperclassman gave me Furry's phone number. And I called Furry and Furry said, come on over. And, you know, I was like, wow, I'm going to go to the Rolling Stones opening act house. And uh, and Furry wanted me to bring him a pint of 10 high, which is a cheap bourbon. I was 15 and I didn't drive, but it was easier for me. This will tell you a little bit about Memphis, a lot about Memphis at the time. It was easier for me as a 15 year old to walk into the liquor store and buy and buy the bottle of bourbon than it was for me to get a ride to his part of town. 
That's crazy. And, and another anecdote you tell is, is after you met Furry and, and then you start meeting some of the older African-American musicians in Memphis, um, you're part of a group that brings Mose Vinson to play yeah. at your high school. And he shows up drunk and he gets heckled um, by uh, a, a kid that you characterize as sort of a cotton air. Yes. And, and uh, you know, you, you drop the N-bomb and, and they have this great quote, the evil behind that word lives and breathes in Memphis. The city yeah. was built on that word. Rock and roll is a response to that word. And then, and then it says, it's the sort of environment where great art develops in obscurity. The ideas are strong because like weeds growing in a concrete sidewalk, they must force themselves through. That just nails it. I mean, that is, you know, that, that to me is the secret ingredient of what makes Memphis music so powerful. It's got to overcome this entrenched, evil local establishment. Yeah, all that stuff, you know, came to me while I was working on the book. I'd never, you know, I'd never really thought about, you know, because rock and roll is such an escape, you know, it's so much fun, it's high energy, um, it can be really intense and it can get scathing, you know, but, but as I became aware of the social barriers that the music had crossed and that the uh, and the affront to society that the music was i realized what its real meaning was yeah and 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 how that and how memphis as the birthplace of rock and roll what that really meant in terms of people's lives you know not just in terms of the music i think of rock and roll in 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 musical terms I think of rock and roll as the failed attempt by white people to play blues and rock and roll is, is, is the result, you know, it's like, well, I, I didn't get, I couldn't, couldn't get that blues feeling, but I got this other new thing and that's what it became. But it was the, you know, I, I, there was a quote Jim Dickinson used to always say that when he was in his, I guess, when he was coming up as a musician playing rock and roll, that was at a time when it was not popular to play rock and roll. You know, that would, that would make people uncomfortable. So that's, that's what the music means to me. And Jim Dickinson is very important. He's a musician and a producer. He was in the Dixie Flyers, which was one of Atlantic's, you know, hotshot session groups. So we'll talk about them later. And he produced Big Star's third album, which we'll get to. And he's also one of the just visionaries that helped you crystallize this stuff. And one of his key points that he emphasizes is that it was the cultural collisions that made this music. And he talks yeah. about, you know, hearing some outtakes from little Richard making his first rock and roll records. And, you know, Earl Palmer, Palmer plays that classic four, four on the snare that's seen as, Oh, this is the switch from, you know, blues to rock and roll. We're not playing shuffles anymore. We're playing the straight time stuff. And, Art Rupi, the head of specialty records, is the classic clueless white guy saying insensitive, inappropriate things on the tape. And Jim Dickinson points out that that was essential, that that was essentially yeah. the sand that produced the pearl. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. This, you know, it takes it. it it's why that's what I mean about rock and roll being this kind of other. It's It's this other thing. It wasn't. It you know it wasn't the blues it wasn't gospel it has elements of all of that in it it took the um, the two sides the black guy and the white guy coming together and trying to find a way to communicate easily right I always thought of the of Booker T and the MGs like that you know they they do the same songs from church, but they played them differently. And when they got together and tried to figure out, well, how can we play these songs that we both know, but we know them differently, the new thing that's created, the fallout from that collision is the new product. And that's what rock and roll was in Memphis. These, these forces that didn't go together were thrown together or were drawn together. I really think drawn is what they were, you know, they were drawn together. And when they collided, uh, the result was a new art form. And let's hear another track. This is Travis Wemmick's Scratchy. Catch. 
hospital. They do it again, won't you? Travis Wemmick, Scratchy, and that, you kind of skip over the Sun Records explosion itself. The story of Sam Phillips and Elvis has been told many times, um, and and you yourself have told the story of Stax Records, which are absolutely pivotal moments in Memphis music history, and you acknowledge that shadow and reference, you know, about Sam Phillips and, and the various, you know, Steve Cropper and tons of the Stax people are figures in the book, but it's this kind of the rest of that generation that came up in the aftermath of Sun Records that had grown up on Dewey Phillips, whether on the radio or on TV, and then had spent time out in West Memphis going to a place called the Plantation Inn (laughs) and learned to rock and roll just a few years before a lot of their peers did from the Beatles. Yes. Well, um, yeah, in West Memphis, if you were – tall enough to reach the counter to put your 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 50 cents on the counter you'd get served a beer you know it, it, it was uh not drinking age it was drinking height and and uh and the guys would go and gals would go over there because the most swinging bands were over there willie mitchell who later would become famous for discovering and producing al green uh willie led the area's hottest band uh, in West Memphis. And and before him, uh, Finest Newborn Sr., whose children, Finest Newborn Jr. and Calvin Newborn, would become jazz stars. You know, he led a combo over there. Um, it was a place, <laughs> Jimmy, one of the other characters in the book, the puppeteer in the book, the washboard playing puppeteer, he's, uh, Jimmy Crossway says, you could go to West Memphis and that's where, you know, the rules were a little more lax. They would show uh, nudist colony films at the drive-in. I love that. Um, you know, and you could get into a place underage and, and drink beer. So West Memphis is just across the Mississippi River. It's very close. And it was like a, a, an alternative world for the kids here. And that track um, by Travis Wemmick, a guy named Roland James was a key part. And and Roland's kind of one of these figures who learned how to rock and roll over in West Memphis and then sort of becomes a studio rat. And you point out one of the things I thought was really a key insight of the book is that Memphis was not so much a label town. We think of Memphis music, we think Sun Records, we think Stax Records, but really what it was was a studio town. And both those labels had their own studio but there were lots of other studios out there doing things weird crazy things like scratchy so roland was you know i knew him uh from around town and i would cover the studio scene for magazines and i could find very little information on roland he had been uh at sun when jerry lee lewis arrived and he becomes the guy. I mean, this is the kind of ear Roland had. He could hear a place in Jerry Lee's music for a guitar, right? Most people couldn't hear it. And most people would say there's not a place. But you listen to some of those early uh, Jerry Lee recordings. Some of them are compiled on an album called Old Time Country Music. And you hear the way Roland could send you his way all around Jerry Lee's notes and keep it very relevant and interesting without getting crowded. So Roland was someone I wanted to know more about. And it turned out um, he had worked for Sam Phillips at Sun and then started his own studio where he realized the kids, you know, this was as the Beatles came in, Roland opens up Sonic and he realizes the kids need a place to record and that he could uh, guide them. And, you know, in three hours, he could cut a couple or four sides on them and, and just kind of coach them through it. And what made Roland good at that was he respected everybody always, all his life. And even later in life, when he's this 
you know, when 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 he was running the San Phillips recording service and uh, hip hop was starting and rap was starting, these rappers would call up uh, Roland and book time at the studio because he kept the prices there very cheap. And these guys would come in and see basically, you know, in the crassest terms, they would see a uh, an old white fat cracker. Right. That was Roland to them until, like Roland says, yeah, they listen to a couple of my corny jokes. You know, they see that I'm treating them with respect. And soon enough, we were making good music together. And that's what Roland that's that's what Roland would do. He became this kind of godhead of uh, uh, a, a, a like spiritual godhead for uh, producers in Memphis. And And one more point when you were talking about. This is a studio town versus the label town. In term, you're exactly right. And in terms of the few labels that were here, with the exception of an office for Mercury Records for a very short time, none of the labels here were ever major labels. When Memphis had labels, it was it was independent labels. So I always like. I think it makes the perfect contrast with Nashville. You know, Nashville's the company town, the industry town, and Memphis is the independent town, the renegade town. And let's hear a quick word from our sponsors and come back and talk about some more Memphis renegade. So we were talking about Roland James, who's one of these key figures that bridges the tradition from Sun Records on into the 60s. And another guy who's a bridge is Chips Moman, who starts out as one of the key players in the early days of Stax Records. But he's pushed out pretty quick and puts his own studio together, which his friend and colleague and frequent songwriting collaborator, Dan Penn, said, you know, he put it together all wrong, but it came out <laughs> all right. Yeah. I remember, I think Alex Chilton, who cut there with the box tops, you know, at Ch under Chips, uh, under Chips Aegis, it was actually Dan at the board. Um, Alex said that, you know, everything was really small and wrong, but boy, that play, that, that studio could get humming, you know, and I think it's, again, it's like the, the unadorned circumstances that this place <laughs> this place one of the problems they had at american was in the in the uh kind of 50s strip shopping center where they where they were there was a barber shop next door that had a drop ceiling and when the barbers didn't like what they were cutting at american they would turn a, a radio up real loud and put it uh up in the drop ceiling so it would bleed into the <laughs> sessions um but American, you know, soon attracted like Neil Diamond and Dusty Springfield and all these international stars, again, who would come down and be disarmed. You know, you weren't going into uh, RCA Studio B in Nashville. You weren't going into a... Uh, fancy place with a huge staff you know you were going to a kind of rundown room with some kind of ragtag players who'd been playing together for dec a decade and who were really keen at listening to the artists who were really egoless in their own musicianship they were they understood what it was to be a backing band, what it was to be a studio band. And that American, I mean, several sessions, several studios in Memphis had studio bands. That American band was really key in showing all the others uh, the ways to do it. And Chip's moment, um, like you said, you know, had 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 an angry departure from Stax and gone into this, you know, place and said, I can do it on my own. And, uh, and, and did, and, and, and to great success over the years. And then they got fed up with Memphis and they went to Atlanta for a minute. And then they went to Nashville. I like that when Momin and the Memphis boys as the, the studio group became known when they got to Nashville, one of the first things they did was, Cut the uh, cut cut the multi platinum country record on Waylon Jennings, The Outlaws. I think it's The Outlaws. It, it was called. Um, 
so Lukenbach, Texas, and wrote Lukenbach, Texas. Yeah, so so they were able to. I mean, it just shows the agility uh, that they had, and 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 could you know could play behind anybody who 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 was put in front of them. And let's hear one of the tracks that was produced there. And this, unlike some of the artists you've mentioned, which you didn't mention Elvis, but they also produced Elvis's 60 yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Comeback. And Elvis Presley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but this is one of their homegrown hits, probably the, one of the biggest hits of the 60s. This is the Box Tops doing Cry Like a Baby. sort of referring to the letter when I said one of the biggest hits of the 60s. This is actually one of the follow-ups to the letter. And, and the letter is just this instance of lightning striking. You get a band of high school kids who have just replaced their singer at Dan Penn's request. Dan Penn's a producer. And they bring in this kid, Alex Chilton, who's a child of privilege, who somehow has this incredible deep, gravelly R&B voice that you would never think is coming from a 16-year-old white kid of privilege. Right. And, you know, they cut the letter by a, a really unknown songwriter. I mean, and, yeah. you know, the Box Tops work is, is what he's most famous for and absolutely lightning in a bottle. It's, it's a number one hit for weeks. It launches the career of the Box Tops. And, you know, the, the story of Alex Chilton so frequently sort of overlooks the box tops. And, and you have to admit, I think that even the best case for the box tops is that they had a few great singles and never really fulfilled that potential. And it's frustrating because it's not like Dan Penn was some Philistine here. This, this was not somebody who's making crappy pop records and just churning it out on, a, on an assembly line. Dan Penn and Chip's Moment, you know, co-wrote some of the best soul songs of the 60s, like Dark End of the Street. This is a band that backed up Elvis. You know, they, they muscled the box tops aside after the box tops played on, on the letter and, and, you know, had the studio guys. But it just didn't click with Alex Chilton for some reason. I mean, they, they struggled to write the follow-up. Um, Neon Rainbow was the first follow-up, but they needed a bigger hit to keep the thing going. And, and, and Penn, and was it Spinner Oldham that co-wrote Cry Like a Baby with Penn? Yes, they're... Uh... They've got this session booked and there's a demand for a, a follow-up. And that was the days when they would do speed very nonchalantly and casually. And uh, they'd s stayed up for something like two days and not come up with anything, gone to the diner next to the studio several hours. You know, the sun was coming up several hours before the band was arriving. And they were just uh, feeling... Um, you know, like they like they lost. So they placed their order, and Dan. I remember Dan telling me the story. He says, Spooner put his head on the table and he said, "I could just cry like a baby." And Dan said, "What'd you say?" Spooner repeats it, and Dan, getting up from the table, you know, doesn't need the food they've ordered. You know, pay throws the money at the cashier. Dan told me magic time was here, and he, me and Spooner. Uh, shoulder to shoulder as we're walking back to the studio we had the whole first verse already written you know and and it's a song that just it took uh two days for it to arrive but when it arrived it came in like a freight train and they just nailed it and i love the anecdote of alex chilton listening to the demo what i presume was a demo or a live run through of the song and all he said was thank you man and shook Turn, or Spinner's hand. Yeah, turned to them and said, thank you, man. <laughs> you know, he's got no idea that they've been up all night, you know, or, 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 or what it's taken to make that song happen. But he just hears it and goes, thank you, man. And sure enough, you know, it's another huge hit. Yeah. And, and the, the fact that that meant so much to Penn and all the um, – tells you that Alex Chilton was already a force, even though he's this kid that they're bossing around in the studio and they're not letting him, you know, direct his, they're not letting the band play on the records. They're not letting him write many of the songs, but they still respect him. I mean, that they 
can feel it and they know they're in the presence of real power and, mm-hmm. and real command. And so when somebody like Alex Stilton says, thank you, man, to a songwriter, that seems like something that they hold on to uh, for the rest of their lives. I think so. I think you're right. I think also, you know, um, it also says a lot about Dan and Spooner that even though they already had hits and even though they were already successful, they, you know, like any artist want that affirmation for their work that you're, you know, you do the work and you're in a hole, you're by yourself and you don't know, you know, if it's daylight outside or the war is over or what's going on, you know, you're the guy just completely isolated. And so getting that outside uh, approval is I think, uh, always welcome and and yeah the fact that it was this kid um and that it meant that much to them says a lot about alex at that age and and, uh alex was coming into his own you know he was uh he'd been literally failing out of uh high school and uh was 16 when he sings the letter and pretty much doesn't go back to school uh, except he becomes a, uh, an, an autodidact and, you know, teaches himself a plenty. Uh, but Alex, um, you know, by the end of the box tops has been already begun to get his songs on the albums and, uh, and ha- is beginning to experiment more with his voice. One of the most interesting things about his career is it's, he, he kind of progresses against nature he starts off as a teenager with a real deep voice and by the time he hits big star and then all his later work he's singing at the top of his throat on on the higher end which is a really unusual approach and it's sort of typical of the alex shilton story because the next phase is (laughs) (laughs) yes to, to to go to to challenge everything and do it your own way that is exactly the alex shilton story yeah, and, and, and the Fox Tops, you know, they put him on the road and he's touring, chasing those hits, you know, for a few years and quite successfully, you know, one of the most successful American independent bands of their era. But it just reaches a point where he can't take it anymore. And he walks away, you know, from a terrible gig in a faraway place with, you know, where they're going to be backed up by the house band and humiliating circumstances. I think they're playing at a school in England or Sweden or someplace. Yeah. And he goes to New York and he decides, you know, I'm going to be a singer songwriter and I'm going to learn to play guitar to accompany myself. And, and he's playing in the coffee houses, but he ends up connecting with some people at Ardent Studios, which is another studio there in Memphis that didn't have a house band or if they did, it's not central to the story. But what they did have was some kids, some very talented kids hanging around and cutting records. One in particular named Chris Bell came to Alex's attention. Yes. And, um, and I think they knew each other slightly, but, uh, you know, Alec, uh, Chris has this notion, he's a big Beatles uh, guy, and he's got this notion of finding a Lennon-McCartney-type working relationship, which um, isn't, uh, you know, which, which, which doesn't bother Alex. He's, he seems to be... Uh, okay with that and and looking for something similar which leads them to big star um and unfortunately and it turns out to be not such a great thing for chris because as the band makes that great first great record and begins to eke its way out and never really gets further than trying to eke its way out because their first album comes out as stacks is creating a new distribution deal and the record doesn't get distributed because the deal only sort of firms up after that uh, record is already kind of come and gone. And then poor Big Star, by the time they put out their second record, uh, that deal is falling apart and they don't get out. But Chris is overshadowed by Alex in the band because what attention they do get is because Alex was in the box tops. Which um, and 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 Chris, you, you know, Big Star is really a powerful collaboration between Chris Bell, Alex Chilton, and John Fry. John Fry is kind of the essential ingredient there. He's the he's the producer, although I don't think he takes a producing credit. I think he takes an arrange engineering credit. He's the owner of Arden. He's the one who teaches Chris 
uh, how to record. Chris, uh, Alex talks about Chris on that first record, Chris uh, staying behind after each session to turn the knobs and Alex isn't interested in that at that point in time. So Chris really defines the big star sound, but doesn't get the credit and ends up uh, leaving the band and he works in his father's fast food restaurant having to wear a paper hat and, um, you know, dabbles in recording thereafter doing, uh, records his great song called I Am The Cosmos and then has a tragic accident uh, right, right after Christmas on Alex Chilton's birthday. In fact, has a car accident, single car accident, uh, driving home from a re rehearsal one night, and he dies. It's a tragic story. Um, and and what's been great to see over the years is the reissue of Chris Bell's work that that he wasn't forgotten and he wasn't overshadowed and all these recordings have been dug up. There's now a book about him. There's a great box set that includes one whole side of an LP is, is and, 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 and interview. So you get to, Chris does finally get his day from big star, but it's a real tragic story. Absolutely. And, and he quits after their first album fails and, and it's sort of a fluke that they, the one thing that the Big Star Machine did well was PR, and they had a great PR agent there at Arden who got them in the ears of virtually every critic in the country. They got stacks to play for this party where critics flew out and saw the band play as a threesome, and they got to cut their second album. But when that one stiffs too, again, because of distribution problems, Alex comes back to do a third album, and, and it's unclear whether he saw it as a solo album or as a Big Star album, but he was still working uh, was it Andy Hummel that stayed around or Jody Stevens? Jody Stevens. The Jody drummer. Stevens. Yeah, the drummer stays around and Jim Dickinson comes in as the producer and they produce this incredible thing that, that's been known as Sister Lovers or Big Stars Third. And it's an album very much not of its time. And let's hear one of the songs from that. This is Big Star doing Nighttime. I'm walking down the freezing street Scarf goes out behind You said get them away Please don't say a word Get me out of here Get me out of and as you can hear from the I hate it here, get me out of here break in that song, <laughs> <laughs> this is Alex Tilted at the end of his rope. And, and, and they produce a record that, you know, Jim Dickinson pulls in some of the best players and then some of the worst players and adds a whole new level of chaos that Alex Chilton hadn't dealt with before. You know, he'd, he'd come up with the box tops playing as well as they could or playing with the American studios, hot shots, the Memphis boys just nailing it every time. Then he plays with the perfectionist Chris Bell. And now he's suddenly put in an environment with Jim Dickinson, who has that Sam Phillips spirit of wanting to capture the chaos. Yes. Alex says about Jim, uh, he showed me a whole new way of recording. And I think that was good and bad for Alex. I mean, that whole new way of recording became, that chaos became a whole new way of living, which Alex ultimately fled Memphis uh, for New Orleans to go sober up. There you go. Talk about people who do, who are doing things against the grain. He went to New Orleans to sober up. Um, and, uh, but the Dickinson work with Alex is that third big star third record. And then they do like flies on Sherbert together, which is one of my favorites because in part, because I was so repulsed by it. The first time I heard it insulted, you can't, you know, you can't bang into the microphone and put that out. That's supposed to be fixed, you know. And uh, and and I remember uh, going back to the store after I heard punk rock, you know, months later after I, I'd first been exposed to like flies on sherbet. I went back to the store and said, please look in the back. You must have a copy left back there somewhere. And the guy found, you know, the, the last one they had. It's a controlled chaos that um, that, like Alex said, it was very quick to record, but it took a year to mix, 
which I think makes a lot of sense because you've got to you've got to contain and not necessarily tame the chaos, but control it, rein it, rein it in in a deliverable way. And that was part of a, a series of moves that Alex made around that time. He produced the Cramps early recordings, mm-hmm. um, and and Big Star's third record comes out finally, like three years after it had been recorded, and it's immediately builds a reputation as as there's sort of a genre of records like Sid Barrett's solo albums or um, Skip Spence's solo album, or that that are people who either are or sound damaged and they're expressing their emotional pain in a very raw way. And, and Big Star Third is definitely Alex Chilton's sort of heartbreak, audible heartbreak album, which is not something that pop music is comfortable with, but it <laughs> does tend to have a creeping impact. It's music that lasts. And that's the, you know, shortly after that, the first two Big Star albums are re-released and Chris Bell's single comes out and, and, you know, groups like R.E.M. and, you know, all of the jangle pop groups of the 80s, you know, the replacements write songs about Alex Chilton and Alex Chilton and Big Star enter the cultural force until, you know, in the 90s, they're uh, a soundtrack for a hit TV show, that 70s show. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Um, it's a crazy, it's a crazy story. You know, you wouldn't believe it if you didn't know it. I think if it didn't happen, it you could write it, but you couldn't sell it because people would say, well, that never happens. But, um, and I, I like that Alex had no interest in that 70s show. Recently, I heard his interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and she makes mention of that, of them having changed a line of the song uh, for the TV show. And he says, oh yeah, no, I've, I've never heard it. You know, he just, he just <laughs> never, but he, he got a kick out of calling it that $70 show. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he got more than $70 out of that. I believe he did. I was yeah. later told he did, but that's what he liked to go around and tell people. Yeah, as he would. And, and you know, we focused on Alex Dilson and, and Big Star because I think that's a story that, and the box tops, that connects these different eras that you're talking about. But there's so much more in this book. And one of the characters I want to circle back to is Sputnik Monroe. And tell us about how a white pro wrestler helped lead the integration of Memphis public facilities. You there, Robert? He dropped. Okay, he dropped. Let's yeah, let me, let me just call him back real quick. All right. You remember where you were at, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. I had a call come in and it seemed to have bounced us off the thing. I don't know how to stop. I don't know if I can, you know, what's it called? Uh, stop well, the uh, call chemicals. waiting. I yeah. think you Unless can't. it's just an urgent call, I think we'll be fine. Though. Uh, we made it through and I really just got two more questions. So, okay. um, so yeah, uh, if you want to just start with Sputnik and Roe, um, I, I just segued from you know, why we talked about Alex Chilton because he connects all the threads, but I want to loop back to somebody who's also key to the book and that's Sputnik McGrow who helped integrate public facilities in Memphis. Robert, before, yes. before you yeah. answer, I, I really need for you to take five seconds of silence and then answer so I can see where to clip. Sure, no okay. problem. Yeah, Sputnik McGrow, that was a story that was new to me that I learned in the research of the book. Dickinson started talking to me about Sputnik Monroe uh, and telling me that he was this wrestling heel, a bad guy um, who was responsible for integrating the auditorium in Memphis, the first civic facility that was integrated. And he did it because when he would win, he would, he wouldn't play to the, beautiful ladies down front or to the cool white kids down front. He, the black people in the audience were segregated to the very top balcony in the auditorium and Sputnik would throw his arms up there and acknowledge them and, and they would cheer him on. And as his crowd outgrew that space, 
he insisted he he told the promoter you either open up you know lower and let my people sit there or i'm not gonna wrestle he wasn't doing it to you know as a civil rights move he was doing it to help his fans it was a personal thing and and once the balcony below was opened up you know there was no they might have put a rope down the middle or something but that couldn't really be enforced and in basically in no time the civic facility became uh became desegregated and that led to the desegregation of the rest of the civic uh facilities so sputnik was this uh you know a a, a hero of of uh quiet proportions who achieved a lot i i didn't know anything about him and when dickinson was telling me about him you know he was on my mind and one day i was hanging out with jerry phillips who uh is sam phillips son and we were friends and he mentioned sputnik and i said wait a minute sputnik monroe is alive and he said yeah he lives in houston i'm in touch with him it turned out jerry had been sputnik's protege like every wrestling you know hero sputnik had all kinds of schemes and one of them was to take jerry who was a a a compact athletic wrestler in junior high school (laughs) and sputnik began to build him professionally as the world's most perfectly formed midget wrestler (laughs) and i know it's crazy and 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 uh through jerry Jerry and I then flew to Houston and I met Sputnik and did like a six hour interview with him in a hotel room, blowing my mind, you know, it was just crazy, these stories. So yeah, then in telling the book, in in telling the story of the book, the whole idea of these, of, of how the blacks and the whites got to share the same space when society was telling them that they couldn't, Sputnik became essential to it. So I love that it's a music book. It's ostensibly a music book. You know, the stores file it under music, but it's really about about the, you know, about racial relations and art. And and Sputnik gets his own chapter and, you know, Lash LaRue gets a chapter as the uh as the uh, cowboy who wore the black hat and used a whip, you know, he was different. These were the things that inspired these uh, early Memphis rock and rollers to take their chances. And I think that's a great way to end it because it really does take a city to build a music scene that's given the world so much like Memphis did. And uh, the book is, it came from Memphis. This is the updated and revised, I believe 25th anniversary edition. Guest is Robert Gordon. Always a treat to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Robert. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks. uh, Let it roll. Uh, Always great to be on and uh, I appreciate your interest and support. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This is the final episode of our 10th season. We'll be taking a few weeks off and Nate will be back to talk 1960s Los Angeles, Beach Boys, Birds, and Sunshine Pop with Andrew Hickey when we return. New Techno Roll episodes will still keep dropping on Thursdays. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It Came From Memphis, Revised and Updated, is published by Third Man Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.